Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and today's guest on the program is T. Desmond Alexander, who's here to talk about his new book from IVP, InterVarsity Press America, in the Essential Studies in Biblical Theology series called Face to Face with God, a Biblical Theology of Christ as Priest and Mediator. And I quote from the publicity, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is celebrated as the great high priest who represents his people before the Father. Jesus' roles as priest and mediator are central to his identity and bring to completion themes woven throughout Scripture. And here to talk to us about the themes woven throughout Scripture is Desmond Alexander, who is Senior Lecturer in Biblical Studies and Director of Postgraduate Studies at Union Theological College in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Desmond, or Desi, as you were called, welcome to the show. Brent, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's an honor to have you, sir. Now, how is Jesus our priest and mediator? Oh, that's a big, big question it to, oh, to start with. Yeah. Uh, how is he our priest and mediator? Mm. Um, I suppose, uh, f- for me, the most important aspect of this was just appreciating how, in particular, in the book of Hebrews especially, Jesus Christ is compared with the Old Testament high priest, uh, and that uh, the author of Hebrews wants to present Jesus to us, uh, the ascended Jesus, and focus on his role in the heavenly sanctuary. And in doing so, he wants to draw out how Christ's ministry, after the resurrection, after the ascension, in the heavenly sanctuary, is uh, reflected in what the Old Testament high priest does. I I worked on a commentary on Exodus, and much of that commentary was uh, um, had to focus on particularly the tabernacle and the role of the high priest within the tabernacle. And it struck me that this was very much a neglected area of um, study, and that uh, most Christians do not have a particularly good grasp of how Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And uh, that's what perhaps inspired me to think about writing something on this topic. I totally agree with you. It's because we don't know our Old Testaments, and we certainly don't learn about the tabernacle as previous generations would probably have been taught, even with models of the tabernacle in their churches, perhaps. Is Christ's high priesthood the central point of the letter to the Hebrews, do you think? I, I think it's very much there at the heart of it, yes. And, and that the author of Hebrews is, is really keen to instruct his readers as to why it is that uh, Jesus is resurrected, but is no longer to be seen on earth. And the author of Hebrews wants to draw attention to the fact that uh, the ascension is a vital aspect of uh, Christ's ministry in that when you look at the, the role of the priest in the Old Testament, the high priest in the Old Testament, an essential part of his ministry was to actually take the offering that was being presented, uh, that was being offered on the bronze altar outside the tabernacle. The high priest's role was to actually take that offering and bring it into the tabernacle symbolically to present to God. And, And in that sense, he is the one who brings the offering to 
God the Father. And uh, Christ's ascension involves that aspect. Christ is, is actually the sacrifice. It's a self-sacrifice that he makes. And he brings that offering to the Father to atone for sin. In the Old Testament context, the high priest was expected to do this on a, on a daily basis. It was a very regular exercise that the high priest undertook. But uh, he, he went in, uh, he offered incense on, a, on a, a golden incense altar that was a miniature of the altar outside the tabernacle, outside the tent. And uh, in, in the presenting of the incense, he is replicating what's happening on the, the bronze altar. The high priest in the Old Testament context does this daily. His, his, he has to keep on repeating sacrifices because they are insufficient, whereas Christ offers one sacrifice that is all sufficient, and he then ascends to the Father, presents the offering, and he remains in the heavenly sanctuary. He's, he's actually seated, whereas in the Old Testament context, the high priest never got to sit he, he was constantly standing. And so he went in, came out, went in, came out. Christ enters the, the heavenly sanctuary and, and remains there forever. Well, hopefully he came out. They, didn't they not attach a rope to him or something so they could drag him out if something happened and he died? It was a, a bit of a, a dangerous job being a <laughs> priest. What, what, what was the importance of the Day of Atonement? And what did the high priest do on this special day in Israel's calendar? Okay. The, the, the Day of Atonement, is important in that on that particular day, the high priest seeks to cleanse, in particular, the tabernacle from the defilement of sins that have not been uh, addressed through the, the rest of the year. It, it strikes me, however, that the Day of Atonement is more uh, about maintaining the relationship that the Israelites have with God. Um, they, they are living close to God in the camp, and a, a consequence of their actions will, can be that they, they sin, and, and sin, sinful actions have a defiling uh, effect. Uh, they make things unclean, and the high priest's role on the Day of Atonement is to look to actually cleanse the defilement from the sacred objects within the tabernacle. And then you have this image of uh, the high priest confessing sins over a goat that is led out into the wilderness. That is, and it symbolically uh, represents the taking away of sin from from the people from the camp. This is all a gigantic. We better come on and talk about the tabernacle and, and temple because this is all a gigantic picture, isn't it? It's a gigantic symbol system that God sets up uh, in in Exodus. But I wonder in what sense the tabernacle and later the temple were pictures of God's holiness. Okay. The, the story in Exodus is interesting from the point of view that when God gives instructions for the making of the tabernacle, uh, he, he, he essentially refers to it in three different ways. He uses a Hebrew term, mikdash, which means a holy place, and when we think about the tabernacle, we think of the fact that there's a tent with two compartments. Um, one compartment is referred to as the holy place, 
and the other the other the more the inner compartment is thought of as the the most holy place or the holy of holies depending upon which translation you read and and we have this sense that god is present in the holy of holies in the most holy place and that his holiness in some way radiates outward, but uh, in a sense diminishes, or the further you are away from God, the less holy things are. Um, so, so, you, so you have the tabernacle being itself being thought about in terms of holiness. Let me, let me also mention that it's, it's also thought about in terms of it being a dwelling place. Mishkan is the Hebrew term that's used. And uh, this often gets translated as tabernacle, but essentially it means a, a dwelling. And this emphasizes the idea that God actually dwells within the tent. Uh, he is present in the most holy place. So the holy one lives within this tent and his holiness makes the tent exceptionally holy so that there are restrictions, limitations on who can approach God. So if you are to come near to God, you have got to be holy. And the high priest plays an important role in bridging this gap between sinful human beings and, and a holy God. Yes. Was the tabernacle a picture of the cosmos? S some people would suggest that it was. It, it may also be uh, a picture of the of the earth in, in, in the cosmos in that sense so you get this image that the, the tabernacle was thought of as being a microcosm a miniature world and uh, you have this sense of god's glory filling the model and then that creates the expectation that if god's glory fills the model like an, an architect's model of the of the world then uh, he's, his glory ultimately will fill the entire earth. Th this, this idea of cosmos, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple reflecting the cosmos, is perhaps also picked up uh, when you have references in the Old Testament to the skies being spread out like a tent or the earth having pillars. The, there's a sense in which the ancient Israelites did not have the ability to see the earth as we see it. And so they extrapolate from the description of the tabernacle or the, or the, the idea of the temple to, to thinking about the world as being in some way similar. I wonder how the tabernacle and later the temple prefigure aspects of the new creation. They point forward to not only to the Lord Jesus, but to the, the new world to come, the new heavens and the new earth, the new meeting place between God and humanity. Probably the most significant connection has to do with the idea that with the temple, the Holy of Holies was, was a cube. And uh, when it was constructed by Solomon, the, the inside of the cube was uh, literally gold plated. And, and then when you come to Revelation 21, 22, you get this image of the new Jerusalem being a golden cube. Uh, of, of enormous dimensions. But the, the essential idea is that the, the New Jerusalem is a, a holy of holies, the, the entire city. So Revelation 21 wants to make the point that there's actually no temple in the city. It speaks of God being the temple. And uh, I, I think we have, to be, we have to understand that 
in the Old Testament context, the, the concept of, of the tabernacle and of the temple is there as a means of enabling God who is holy to come and dwell among people who are not holy. It, there's a sense in which the, the, the curtains of the tabernacle are like a barrier that prevents people from coming close to God, from seeing God. When we come to the New Jerusalem, those barriers are uh, totally removed. So um, we, we don't think in terms of there being a temple, a literal temple in the New Jerusalem, because in one sense, there's no need for it. Well, let's come on to talk about the Lord Jesus and how he fulfills all this imagery and brings it all together, because it's absolutely fascinating and incredible, really. I mean, how is Jesus presented in the letter to the Hebrews as our great high priest, the high priest who fulfills the role and the function that the high priest of Israel had had um, done for centuries? How, how is he presented? I, I, I probably the the all important thing here is to to pick up on the fact that the author of Hebrews sees the Old Testament tabernacle as being a model of the heavenly sanctuary. And he thinks in terms of Jesus Christ being a high priest, a priest who enters into that heavenly sanctuary when he ascends. So, so for the author of Hebrews, the ascension of Jesus is particularly important. That actually picks up on something that's there in the Old Testament, but, but isn't always well observed. The most significant Old Testament sacrifice is often thought of as being the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering where the entire animal was uh, transformed into smoke uh, that goes upward. The Hebrew term for that particular offering could also be translated, I think, more helpfully as the ascension offering. So the, 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 the idea of the offering going up is all important. That's, that's an idea that we carry over from the Old Testament when we think about Jesus and his ascension. So the, the offering is made outside the sanctuary and then is brought into the sanctuary when, when Jesus ascends. The author of Hebrews wants to make the point that Jesus himself does not belong to a priestly family. And so in order to work through his connection between the, the ironic high priest and Jesus, he draws attention to particularly Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is vital for understanding the, the argument within the book of Hebrews, because it draws attention to the fact that God addresses David's Lord and uh, speaks in terms of him sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then you have this oath being given that he is to be a priest after the fashion of Melchizedek. Uh, we, we may come on to, to talk about Melchizedek in a few minutes, I'm not sure. But uh, one of the things that's very important to appreciate is that Melchizedek himself was, was a, a unique priest. He didn't have a father, uh, as far as we know, who was a priest. Uh, he doesn't have a son who is a priest. The author of Hebrews wants to make the point that Melchizedek was, was a priest king and uh, Jesus Christ, in, in the same fashion, is also a priest king. He, he's a king belonging to the line of David, 
the son of David. He's from the tribe of Judah, but he is appointed by God in a unique way through a divine oath that God makes to be high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Well, that was my very next question. How does the author of Hebrews connect Jesus with Melchizedek? But I think you've already answered it, unless you want to add something to it. Well, well let, me, let, me, let me add, just to underline the, the, very, the point that I think is really important. Uh, our English translations often talk about the order of Melchizedek. And that gives to most people the impression that there was a priestly order that, that Melchizedek Melchizedek belonged to some kind of institution and that Jesus belonged to the same institution as Melchizedek. And that's an unfortunate rendering of the, of the, the Greek text, I think. It's, it's really wanting to say that he was a high priest after the fashion of or after the manner of Melchizedek. If you, if you go back to certainly the Hebrew text of Psalm 110, that's the, the point that's being made. There's something unique about Jesus and his high priesthood. The, the, the other idea maybe to, to draw out here is that in, in the context of thinking about Jesus as high priest and the Old Testament high priest, God wants to, or the, the author of Hebrews brings into consideration the fact that you have two separate covenants. So in the Old Testament context, you have a covenant being made at Mount Sinai, that leads into the construction of the tabernacle. And that covenant includes within it the appointment of Aaron as high priest and the establishment of his lineage as the high priesthood that uh, is to be connected with the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle. Uh, th this is something that, in a sense, is legislated for through the first covenant. The author of Hebrews wants to draw attention to the fact that there is now a superior covenant. And because you have a better covenant, uh, it introduces, in a sense, new legislation, and you can appoint a new priesthood. And so Jesus is the priest, the high priest associated with the new covenant. He, he is unique in the sense that he, his father was not a priest. He is going to live forever. So the high priesthood will never pass from him to someone else. And th th this, this argumentation is part of the author of Hebrews reasoning for believing or for encouraging people to believe that they should put their trust in Jesus as high priest rather than look to the Levitical or the Aaronic high priest as being the person who will intercede for them, who will offer their sacrifices to God. Yes, yeah, so the Lord Jesus then is the mediator of this new or better covenant. Hence, he fulfills the role of priest and mediator and king. Yes, the, the word mediator is a, is, a, is, a, is a complicated word because in Christian theology, it's sometimes used in, as a very broad umbrella term to include everything that Jesus does in terms of reconciling human beings to God. In the book of Hebrews, it's used in a very narrow sense in terms of describing Jesus as the mediator of the covenant. And there's something quite particular about the way it's used because it's 
we, we sometimes think of a, a mediator as someone who brings two parties together that are in conflict. And, and the mediator, mediator helps them work out a resolution to their conflict. The author of Hebrews doesn't quite use the word mediator in that sense, because he sees the mediator as the person who ensures that the covenant relationship, the harmonious relationship is created. So the, the concept of mediator is actually much stronger than simply someone who brings two parties together and they work out the con- their, their, a resolution. In, in Hebrews, Jesus is the one who ensures that that resolution takes place. And that, that again, reinforces the author of Hebrews' argument that Jesus is um, so much superior because of this role that he undertakes. How does Jesus' death then relate to his role as high priest? Yeah, that's a very important question. His role is important because uh, his death is important because the high priest has to atone for the sins of the people. And it is through the, it's through the making of a sacrifice that that atonement takes place. It's interesting. I've been working somewhat on the book of Leviticus recently, and it's really interesting to observe that whenever the tabernacle is set up and God's glory fills it at the end of Exodus, that Moses is not permitted to go into the tent. He's prohibited from entering it. He cannot come close to God. You then go into the book of Leviticus and you, and you read about all the different sacrifices, different types of sacrifice that have to be made. You then come to the consecration of Aaron as high priest. And then in chapter nine, you read about the inauguration of the sacrificial system. And at that point in, in Leviticus nine, Aaron undertakes various sacrifices in, in order to cleanse the altar to, to make atonement for his own sin and then make atonement for the sins of the people. And in doing all of that, he then makes it possible for, for himself and for Moses to enter into the tent with him. And uh, at the end of that, the end of uh, Leviticus 9, fire comes down from heaven, from God, to, to actually burn up the offerings on the altar and the people rejoice and fall down and worship. And it's as if th- th- this is, in a sense, the, the, the point at which God's presence in the camp has become, in a sense, real to the people. They, they now appreciate that God is with them in, in all his glory and that they have a high priest who can intercede, who can atone for their sin and ensure that they can remain in a, a relationship with God. Final question, I suspect, uh, Desmond. What then does the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross accomplish for us? If we go back to the, the sacrifices that are offered in the Old Testament, because they, they model for us, they help us understand what Christ does for us, I, I think we can begin to put together a picture of what, Christ, what Christ's death on the cross uh, achieves for us. And, and there are a number of things that we need to appreciate. We need to appreciate, first of all, that Christ's death is in the form of a ransom. It is is a payment 
that is made in order to deliver us from the penalty of death. So we are, in a sense, because of our sin, under a death sentence, and a, a, a substitute uh, death occurs in order to set us free. We, we, we think in terms of justification when we reflect upon that idea that the, the law condemns us and someone has taken the penalty in our place, a, a, a ransom has been paid. That's a very important part. But we also need to appreciate that alongside the making of a ransom, there are sacrifices that address the issue of defilement, uncleanness. So our wrongdoing in some way stains us, makes us unclean, makes us filthy, and we need to be cleansed. And so the death of Christ on the cross also addresses that particular issue of purifying us, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And, and that, can be an, that can be most important because we have consciences that often condemn us and we, and we need to have something. We need to understand. We need to have our conscience cleansed and Christ's death on the cross achieves that for us. A, another element to all of this is that the sacrificial system is also about sanctifying us making us holy. And so when you look carefully at the rituals in the Old Testament that have to do with people drawing near to God, there's a sense in which they are sometimes, um, not necessarily always, but sometimes they are sprinkled or touched with blood that has in, in some, some aspects, it has a cleansing effect. They are cleansed by the blood. But there's also a sense in which the, the blood and possibly also the process of eating sacrificial meat imparts holiness to them. So the altar is thought of as being holy. And anything that touches the altar and then touches the worshiper makes that person holy. And I think we, we, we pick up on this symbolism when we think about the Lord's Supper, in that when we partake of it, we are, in a sense, imbibing the sacrifice that Christ made. And uh, a very important part of New Testament teaching is that Christ's death not only justifies us, but also sanctifies us. And we need to be made holy if we are actually to come into God's presence. So it's not just enough to have your sins, in a sense, the, the slate wiped clean, the penalty paid, but you also need to be made clean, pure, and then also sanctified, given a holy status, uh, something that uh, was lost when, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And it's something that God imparts to us through the, the means of the sacrificial system. So there, there, as you'll see, there, there are a number of different elements that are really important when it comes to appreciating the significance of Christ's death on the cross. Mm. Thank you so much, Desmond. Desi Alexander, Senior Lecturer in Biblical Studies and Director of Postgraduate Studies at Union Theological College in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Sir, it has been a great pleasure. Your book from IVP America in the Essential Studies and Biblical Theology series is called Face to Face with God, A Biblical Theology of Christ as Priest and Mediator. And having just run through a whole series of 
podcast on Hebrews with my pastor, Rido, Ian Reed from Sydney, Australia. I can highly recommend the this book by Desmond Alexander if you want to get deeper into the letter to the Hebrews. And if you want to understand how Hebrews encapsulates and sums up the whole Old Testament and carries the, uh, carries the biblical narrative forward, then this book will help you do that. So Desmond, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.